You're tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. It's been a couple of decades since a state experimental desalination plant on Oahu's west side shut down. But now a new city venture is about to get kick-started. The Honolulu Board of Water Supplies' Barry Usagawa talked with us about a project to get drinking water from ocean water. It's presently in its design phase. Groundbreaking is still a year or more away. It's to build on what was learned from the state's demonstration project, which tested out three processes back in the 1990s. Here's Barry explaining what's in store. As I recall, it tested out three technologies. One is the reverse osmosis membranes, which uh, is the prevailing technology now. The others were electrodialysis and electrodialysis reversal using um, electric charge to separate the uh, salt out of the fresh water. But now membranes are the proven technology and are um, used quite extensively throughout the world. So that's what we're using. Okay, so tell us about this project that is about to get underway. We're building a, a small seawater desalination plant uh, for Campbell Industrial Park. It is located in the park on land that was uh, publicly conveyed to us by the federal government as part of the Barbers Point Naval Air Station closure. We were granted 20 acres at no charge with the stipulation that we had to build a seawater desalination plant within a given time frame. We just put out the uh, request for proposals I think last year and we were were able to award the contract to uh, a company that's going to design it, construct it, and then operate it and maintain it for a 20-year period with uh, two five-year extension options. Tell us then about the technology that this plant will focus on. So it's reverse osmosis membranes. So what they do is we have two saltwater wells that we drilled on the property. They pump it through pretty high pressure through the membranes and out comes fresh water on one side and the other side is brine which is then injected into the shallow caprock aquifer just off the site and should not affect the local environment there. Uh, the fresh water is then conditioned. Uh, it takes a lot of the, the minerals out and then we have to put in some back so it's stable and then it will serve the Cambo um, Industrial Park so the, the industry there as well as the uh, the businesses within the park. Small enough to not go out of there, you know, the, the consumption of the of the industrial park is more than what the plant can provide, but it will allow us to redirect the transfers, because right now they're using water from central Oahu, from our wells at um, Kunia and uh, Waipahu, and we can re- redirect that for Eva's growth because it's the secondary urban center. So. It's just a redistribution of supplies, um, and our strategy is to diversify our water supplies, fresh groundwater, desalination, plus recycled water, plus conservation, some stormwater capture. You know, So the more diverse we have our water supplies, the more resilient we will be to climate change-induced drought, which is what's being forecast. So it's allow us, allowing us to be more resilient. There have been efforts before to do things on a small scale. I know I was reading that the Kona Village Resort had a couple of small desalinization plants. Nelha, the natural energy lab on the Big Island, you know, was experimenting with some things. But would this be then, what, the largest? I believe so. It's it's just under 2 million gallons per day. But uh, that's larger than a resort in Kona or Nelha need. So probably will be the largest. What's the timetable? Could we ramp up? We expect the plant to be um, constructed and online by the end of 2026. And they're just starting. So they're just uh, 
just a couple of months into the contract. And as far as the funds for this, where did it all come from? We worked hard to develop a financing strategy because this is a very expensive plant. And so we have several federal grants and some low interest federal loans that we've been able to obtain. The first one is the American Rescue Plan Act um, that was, um, I guess, as a result of a pandemic uh, to jumpstart the economy because it did cause a number of uh, economic issues, right? High inflation, material supply chain issues, power costs have gone up. So we used $25 million of the, uh, we call it the ARPA funds, courtesy of the city council and also applied for and receiving a U.S. Bureau of Reclamation grant up to $20 million. And then we have a low interest loan that we're applying for called WIFIA, which has some favorable interest rates and payback terms. The remaining amount could either be our impact fees that we collect from new meter connections for growth related projects, or we could apply for state revolving fund loans, low interest loans, which is federally subsidized. So we're trying to keep the, uh, the amount of um, water rates low for just our operation purposes and some limited capital projects. So our um, strategy was to obtain as much federal funding to kind of keep the local water rates affordable. And is there any challenge with that location that you've selected? Because I think the previous plant, I don't know, maybe you know some water was saltier than originally thought. Yeah, there, there's project this of, of this scale and complexity is, is no short of challenges. The source water is fairly consistent. The biggest two challenges from a seawater desalination plant is the power cost, because it takes a lot of power to pressurize that salt water to push it through the membranes. We intend to mitigate that with, we have 20 acres, so there's room enough for a future photovoltaic farm that will offset some of the power costs. The other main challenge is what to do with the brine concentrate because when you make fresh water you make an eco part or thereabouts of what we call brine so it's saltier than salt water and what to do with that but that whole Campbell Industrial Park area is an is an approved underground injection control area so a lot of the refineries and the power plants they inject their saltier water that they use to cool their for cooling so it's temperature but injecting it into the ground is less environmentally impactful than if we were to, say, discharge it into the ocean. If we did that, then it would really affect the uh, initial environment. So those are the two big ones. This particular site is not, you know, it was at the end of the of the Kaleloa Airport runway. It is adjacent to the state ag feedlot. It's undeveloped, so it's basically a Keawe forest. There's a few archeological sites that we had to, um, to identify and, and mitigate and protect. And we've been coordinating that with the State Historic Preservation Division. So I think those are the three main challenges for this project, well, I guess next to the cost, but um, you know, our financing strategy is trying to address that. So You know, there are other countries that have been working at this desal process. I think Saudi Arabia. Is there anything we can learn from their experience? You know, I'm not sure yeah. what they do with their brine. So the company that we've awarded the project to, they operate a number of desalination plants in the Caribbean and on the southeast United States. So they're very familiar with uh, the processes. You know, fresh water is a challenge worldwide. And so that challenge has driven a lot of research and improved the technology of the membranes. They're becoming more efficient. The membranes can take out more stuff 
and there's energy recovery devices to recover the high pressure and to feed it back into the pumps. So you know, the energy put into it is recovered into the process, so it reduces the, uh, you know, the power costs. So is this like brackish water that we're drawing up? So that was a state desalination plant. They used brackish water there, and some of their wells were, like as you're saying, was higher chloride than the others. But this one we're using seawater. So it's deep wells that we drilled at the site, pulling up salt water from the ocean. So it's consistently salt water. Of course, brackish water would be cheaper, but there's not that much of, of it. It takes fresh water to make brackish water in the mix. This one is just straight seawater. And we have a lot of that. <laughs> we have a lot of that, okay. right? No freshwater aquifer that close to the coast like this is. You know, it's just about a thousand feet or so from the coast. So, yeah, it's just all salt water under the site, and the wells are right on site. So we're just pulling it up from the ground, naturally filtered. Anything else that you think would be important to underscore just to help our listeners understand what we're trying to achieve here? The um, uh, common question I get is, are we running out of freshwater? Why are we doing, you know, sea, you know seawater desalination? And I was saying before, it is a diversified water supply system. We don't want to be totally reliant on groundwater because this climate change affects us and we've seen some trending like lower rainfall trends and then we get these two or three years of drought so having a reliable source of fresh water is is important for public health and safety to support the economic growth of the island and so that's how we're trying to manage the freshwater resources that that are available naturally as well as what technology can provide we have the largest recycled water system in eva our honolulu recycled water facility and that offsets a lot of the irrigation demand that would normally come from groundwater um, we also demineralize that for industrial process water so we provide demineralized recycled water to the area's uh, refineries. I guess there's only one refinery now, PAR, and the uh, power plants, Kahe and the Hiko Peking plant and the Kailailoa power plant that uses some um, fuel, oil, I guess, to boil water to make energy. And instead of using potable water, we're using demineralized recycled water. This particular plant is going to be for drinking water, and it'll be quite high quality, taking a lot of the stuff out that normally would be there. So we think uh, you know, this plant will provide a, a viable product that our customers would appreciate. That was Barry Usagawa, po- Program Administrator for the Honolulu Board of Water Supply's new ocean water desalinization plant that is just getting underway thanks to a number of federal grants and loans. The hope is to get that plant online in late 2026. Hello, this is Sabrina Tavernisi, host of The Daily. Join us for an in-depth look at the world's biggest stories. Catch The Daily Monday through Thursday at 1.30 here on HPR One. Support for HPR comes from Haleakala Ranch with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to restore, maintain, and preserve the open vistas and natural beauty of Maui. More at HaleakalaRanch.com. 
The neighborhood board system marks its 50th anniversary this year. Oahu voters created the commission. We talked to its executive director earlier this summer about the successes of the brainchild of the late Frank, Mayor Frank Fossey. Today we hear from a current neighborhood board member, uh, Robert Armstrong, about what could be tweaked. I think that after 50 years, it's certainly appropriate to take stock in the system. And I think coming off the pandemic, many of the boards, including mine, are seeing a somewhat downtick in terms of public participation. We certainly saw that in the elections. And so I felt, along with a couple other people, that we needed to, you know, probably brush it off the neighborhood plan and take a look at the neighborhood commission itself and, and you know, kind of reinvigorate and revitalize and refresh you know what is so sacred to us here on Oahu and that is the neighborhood board system and so that's what we're going to do. And so uh, what's the plan where will this meeting be? The meeting will be at 1152 Smith Street which is the former Channel 14 television studios it is now New Life Center they've been very generous uh, in donating their space for us in the afternoon we begin at one o'clock i hope we'll be done by three or three thirty and the process is pretty old-fashioned we are going to bring everybody together say a few words have a hawaiian blessing and then brainstorm the things that all citizens here on this island would like to see uh with the neighborhood board system now i'm assuming most of that will be ideas to improve but it's not necessarily just that. For instance, this is an example. You know, we really haven't taken a look at the demographics of particular neighborhoods in the 50 years since the plan was organized and approved. And so the populations, for instance, of Takaako are much different from what they were a half century ago. So we're going to take a look at the boundaries and the demographics of the neighborhood. We're going to take a look and try to really fill in the holes of the neighborhood plan, which is our constitution, and then review and reorganize, if need be, the neighborhood board commission, as well as the functions of the commissioners. And let me say, we're going to do that as a brainstorming session and then break out into groups where we formulate questions from the brainstorming sessions for research and investigation. Earlier this year, we saw uh, some hiccups with the election Mm-hmm. The neighborhood board system was the first to step up and try this voting by mail. The bottom line is the neighborhood board system has done some innovative things. But this year, th- there were some hiccups with the recent election and some folks wondering, you know, why it is that there were members of the commission that were allowed to run for office on these boards. I have those concerns as well. I'm sure there are others. This organizational meeting that we're having on the 19th is not exclusively about this but I'm sure people will bring it up. I think it is concerning when folks who are um, supposedly here to help us administer the neighborhood plan as well as the democratic process also have their hands into, you know, making of the process and uh, and the laws and the resolutions and things like that. Uh, it concerns me. I um, There are other areas that I'm sure concern others. And so, We need to take a look at all of this and and see if this is indeed the best system we can come up with. I have no problem with someone in the Neighborhood Commission office serving on any other board 
except the one that they are getting their paycheck from. That's just me personally. The other thing is I love the innovation that the election had. The trouble is it wasn't very transparent. I went to when the votes were being counted, and that session was a big bust. They could not get the computers to talk to one another, and so we spent two and a half hours looking at each other and ultimately were sent home to await the next day when a tally was provided to us. Uh, that's not the best system. Um, since the state went to printed ballot and was very conscious of those who are technologically poor, I don't understand why the city and county didn't do the same thing, especially since everyone had to be mailed a separate code for online voting. So it didn't save any money in that regard. So if you're going to mail something, why don't you just mail the ballot and have it all be opened in front of, you know, the public and then account for it by scanning it and providing results in an hour or two. That seems to me to be the the safest and the most sane and transparent way of doing it. I just remember going back to the days when this was proposed by then, you know, Mayor Frank Fossey as a way to empower the people and engage our community, you know, to have a voice, to have a say in the city process. Absolutely. Uh, uh, that's the genius of the system is that this is micro government or micro politics at its very best. It, it bubbles up from truly grassroots citizenry. And in a perfect world, it goes through the neighborhood board, gets synthesized or clarified there, and then on to city council for action. Unfortunately, that does not happen very often. I, for instance, was an author of a, of a, a bill or a resolution, I should say, on graffiti. We took a look at best practices across our country, and we incorporated that into the resolution we wrote. It received 100% approval on my neighborhood board, and I then went to merchants and, and made sure that they were on board. Everyone in my neighborhood, and they were very big names, you know, very big companies associated with the selling of spray paint and things like that, they were on board, and then it sort of died because we don't really have a system to share it with other neighborhood boards so that they could lend their voice and then pre present it in a powerful way to our city council per person. And it just died in her office, and that's a shame. We hope it will be resurrected. But we could have a much cleaner and nicer city had they taken action on that resolution two years ago, and they still haven't. That's one example. And so, you know, the question would be then, how do we make it so that what happens in Waikiki or what happens on the North Shore is shared with people here in the downtown area or any other neighborhood? And if we want to sign on and add our voice or add ideas to their resolutions and their ideas, then it, it, it snowballs and works its way to city council. How does this, I mean, that, that's a perfect democracy if that could be achieved. And that's the failing of the system right now. Sunshine laws are partly to blame, I think, because we're not allowed to kind of cross pollinate at this point, but that's part of what we've got to look at. And we've got to research ways of how can we uh, unify our voices if an issue so needs it on so, Oahu. So do you think some of these ideas may be fixable just by amending the rules? Or do you think this might mean going back to the voters? 
I don't have any problem with going to the voters someday and asking them to to adjudicate a matter if that's what's required. But I think most of the issues that are in front of neighborhood boards can just be shored up and made strength and strengthened by having a better neighborhood plan or the constitution that runs all of us. And there's so many holes and missing gaps and things that haven't been written that most of us look at each other who understand some of the rules and we just kind of scratch our heads and go, I, it's so vague, I don't know, you know how to proceed here. And so that's some of the stuff, some of the sausage making that needs to be done here in this new round of um, reinvigoration of the neighborhood system. That was Robert Armstrong, member of the Downtown Neighborhood Board, who is organizing a public meeting to get ideas on how best to tweak Oahu's neighborhood board system. Neighborhood boards were started in 1973 when the question was put to voters to create a system to encourage civic engagement. Many state and city lawmakers got their start serving on the neighborhood boards. That meeting again is Saturday, August 19th at 1 p.m. at 1152 Smith Street downtown. Our reality check segment with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat features a story about fortifying key services in our community. Reporter Marcel Henri joins us today. Good morning, Marcel. Morning, Catherine. How's it going? Good. So you're focusing on uh, Meals on Wheels, a very important uh, service that we provide uh, to our homebound seniors. That's right. Meals on Wheels uh, coupled with disaster and emergency preparedness, basically. So you had the FEMA, uh, Federal Emergency Management Agency, Region 9 Administrator, the uh, Hawaii Emergency Management Agency Administrator, uh, Senator Brian Schatz was uh, along. They were they were all gathered yesterday at Lanakila. We're back with the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio before we were interrupted by a power outage. Uh, we are back online. And uh, Marcel Henri, are you back with us? I'm here. I'm still okay. here. Hey, <laughs> all right. I didn't uh, purposely hang up on you. Okay, uh, no worries. But, yeah, we're talking about uh, resiliency, you know. Gosh, an important uh, topic. Uh, and and you were at an a, uh, event yesterday at Lanakila Pacific uh, where th this organization is getting some needed FEMA funds to help fortify its, uh, its its systems. Right, and the gist is that these are very competitive dollars, competitive grants. You know, there's there's a huge demand for retrofitting buildings uh, across Oahu and across the nation to better prepare for climate change. And what a lot of these emergency officials, the the strategy that they're they're taking, is to look for some of these, frankly, no brainer community organizations that are doing very important work for very vulnerable populations and you start there you know it's this meals on wheels is is such an important uh, organization under normal what you would call blue sky times we'll imagine you know the, the wake of a, of a hurricane or some other disaster 
So it just kind of raises more awareness of the challenges that we face when you talk about trying to uh, to, to bolster and, and better protect, you know, all the, you think of all the single wall construction uh, homes that are, that lie in Oahu and even our, our state's uh, emergency shelters, which frankly would not withstand hurricane force winds. Uh, but this is this is a strategy. This is an approach that they're taking, given all the limitations in funding and whatnot. Start with places like Lanakila Pacific. Yeah, it's all about resiliency. And so you need to harden those buildings uh, because, yeah, all it takes is one really bad hurricane, uh, particularly here on Oahu. And we're dead meat because uh, right. uh, we're not really prepared. We don't have that built in resiliency. So, yeah, it will, it will go a long way to uh, helping to provide that critical service, uh, you know, to shut ins to seniors. I mean, gosh, 2000 meals a day. That's an awful lot of meals. It just shows, you know, heavy demand for meals, heavy demand for for retrofitting to, to protect these kind of services. Yeah. Yeah. So a big deal with uh, all those uh, FEMA officials in town and our delegation, congressional delegation uh, in support of building resiliency in our community. But thanks so much, Marcel. Thanks, Catherine. All righty. We've been talking to uh, Civil Beat's Marcel Henre. You can read his story online at civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Matson, investing in new ships, cranes, and terminal improvements to serve the needs of Hawaii communities for generations to come. Matson.com. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Dr. William Keepen author of Belonging to God. And next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about spirituality, science, and a universal path of divine love. Sunday morning at 11. Support for HPR comes from the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission, offering guidance on how to help babies sleep safely by always placing baby on their back with a fitted sheet but no toys, blankets, or pillows. Learn more at cpsc.gov. If you like chocolate, you may not have ever thought much about the farm-to-table concept, but we thought it was worth exploring this week. Go Farms is launching a series of workshops and field trips to understand the progress of the fledging cacao industry across the state. Interest is high, and turns out there's a wait list. The company may take the program to the neighbor islands to share the successes of early trials. We took a visit out to a farm in Wailua this past weekend where Manoa Chocolate is betting on its success. Farm manager Max Breen took a 
artists on a tour. The orchard is in full swing, and there are plans to build a processing center and to start farm tours later this year. The trees were planted three years ago and are full of cacao pods. That's the good news. The bad news is wild pigs have taken a liking to the chocolate pods, too. This is going to be the side of our tasting room right here. So ideas like you're in a nice like pergola or like gazebo type structure and you're like tasting chocolate. We're talking about cacao in Hawaii and the rest of the world and you're like gazing at the trees around you. So that's the vision. Um, yeah, this, this site when we got here is like mostly like guinea grass, like invasive grasses, uh, invasive tree species like halicoa and um, we removed all of that, we left some um, of the older trees, like these monkey pods you see over here. Um, and then we planted in like really careful design a, an agroforest with cacao, um, companion shade species like this Clericidia, these uh, cedro and laurel trees, uh, tropical mahogany, neem trees. I think that within the cacao orchard itself, there are about 10 species of tropical trees. Um, we only cultivate the cacao within the orchard, but like on the margins of the property and in other sections, we grow um, avocado, mango, uh, lychee, citrus, all kinds of stuff. Um, this orchard that we're about to get into is uh, the 2021 planting. Um, so you'll see the trees are a little bit younger and we still have some fruit on them from this previous harvest that I left on so I could show people that visit the farm. And um, then is this, all this used to be sugar? That's right, yeah, it was sugar for a long time. Um, you know, we can see the Wailua sugar mill um, from this property as we get up into the next orchard. Um, but, but before we got here, it was, uh, it was ranched, uh, there were cattle on it, and then it was fallow uh, for like eight years. Um, so by the time we got to it, it, was, uh, it needed a lot of landscaping, a lot of work to start a farm. These are beans? Those are, those are pods. pods. Yeah, so the beans are inside of the pods here. There's a ripe one over here. So they change, the fruits start either like a green or a dark red like this, and they'll turn color, get lighter, get more of like an orangey yellow. And um, that's like our biggest indicator of when we know to pick the fruit. Uh, they're picked like that with some shears. And then depending on how your farm works, at some point on the farm, you'll group these pods up or you'll do it right here at the tree. You crack this pot open, usually with a machete, or you can do it with a mallet. And then you take the seeds out, you extract. Have you ever tried cacao fruit no, before? No, I, I haven't. Oh, great, exciting moment. Yeah. yeah. So this is the seed. It's covered by this uh, mucilage or pulp, as we call it. And um, this is sweet pulp that tastes, uh, I'll, let, I'll let you be the judge of what okay. it tastes like. Yeah. Yeah, so just suck on it. Don't chew the seed. What do you think? Mm, it's creamy, tart. Reminds me of soursop. Yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's a common one people say, for sure. Yeah, a little soursop. Some people say lychee. A kind of a cross between the two. Some citrus, yeah. It's good. Yeah, <laughs> I'm glad you like it. Now, a stint in the Peace Corps in Panama propelled Breen into agriculture. He's a graduate of the University of White Hilo and has worked on cacao farms on the Big Island and now is focused on seeing the orchard on Oahu's North Shore mature. This farm is a collaboration between Manoa Chocolate and Cacao Services, Inc., which is an agricultural consulting firm that specializes in cacao. So we started this farm in 2020, planted our first trees in 2020, and our trees are now bearing. And I'd like to show people what we've built and educate people in Hawaii on cacao, chocolate, 
and uh, this beautiful site we have. How many acres is under cultivation? So we have five acres that we're managing right now, and that includes polyculture, so other fruit trees like mango, avocado, and primarily cacao. Is there any trick to growing it? I mean, uh, what kind of climate does it seek out? Tricks to growing it, I guess, uh, sheltering it from wind. Cacao is very sensitive to wind, and you know we live in a part of the world that gets very windy, so we have to plan orchards carefully with uh, windblock species. You can see around you there's neem trees and panax trees surrounding us. So cacao needs companions, not only for the wind, but also for shade. It's a umbrophile or shade-loving tree, so it's understory crop. And then does it like dry, wet? Well, here we're pretty dry. We're like under 40 inches of rain a year. Cacao, you'll see in textbooks, needs about like 60 inches of rain a year, but like well distributed throughout the year. And right here, we don't have that. So we irrigate, which uh, actually gives us, you know, some more control. We can decide when the trees get water. We can give it very regularly. Um, we could feed nutrients through the water if we want to. And you've got a fence to protect from pigs and things like that. That's right, yeah, primarily pigs. Pigs are our biggest pests, our biggest uh, challenge on this farm, I'd say. And once the fruit uh, started to bear this year and last year, the pigs in the area started getting a, a taste for the fruit, and then we were in big trouble. <laughs> they started like tearing trees in half to get to the fruit, cutting into the trees with their hooves. So yeah, it's been a, a huge problem, and recently we put up this uh, electric fence that zaps them and keeps them out of the orchard area, and it's been working very well. So you would like to get more people interested in cacao um, just for the possibilities. I mean, we're always looking for, you know, diversified crops. And a few decades ago, there was a thought that, hey, we could grow this here and, and we could probably produce some pretty good product. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think there's uh, many aspects of cacao that could be good for Hawaii, like namely, of course, like growing a food crop and also reforestation. So because it's an umbrophile, as I mentioned before, uh, it needs a canopy, it needs a forest to grow under, or it thrives better in one. That gives us the opportunity to reclaim land that was used for sugarcane or cattle ranching and plant tree species, grow a perennial crop with bigger trees sheltering it. How tall will these trees grow? The cacao trees, will keep them under 12 feet, 12 to 15 feet really, so that we can reach the fruit. They'll keep going and going and then fall over on themselves and, and grow again if we let them. But because we're trying to uh, harvest a crop, we want to keep them in a manageable stature. And then is it labor intensive to harvest? For sure, there's, um, there's as of yet no uh, mechanized harvest system for cacao, at least getting the fruit off of the trees. So it's all hand-picked with scissors. Uh, as far as then the whole processing and getting it to a point where you can put it in Manoa chocolate. Yeah, that's, so that's uh, with cacao, that all happens on the farm. Um, so we harvest the cacao fruit. Uh, we pull the seeds and pulp out of the fruit. We then uh, put it in a fermentation box, usually a wooden box, and uh, that gets turned back and forth into other boxes uh, for like on average about a week and then it needs to dry in the sun. So we do all that on farm. It's about like a two, three week process in total. Um, and only then is it transported to the chocolate factory, Manoa Chocolate in our case. And then as far as chocolate from other farms, I mean, because you've got farms across the state. Yeah, yeah. so um, there's a lot of small farms popping up across the state. I think, you know, at this point, we probably have an estimated 300 acres total in the state, which is tiny. That's like the, for 
comparison that's like one single estate farm in Ecuador but we have a lot of small farmers that each have you know their own unique product and companies like Manoa Chocolate or um, Maui Kuya Chocolate on Maui um, can and Lonohana Estate Chocolate here on Oahu uh, they can buy up those beans and create single origin bars and um, yeah broadcast you know market those those farms individually in their chocolate bars. And then do you uh, bring in other chocolate from anywhere else? So Manoa Chocolate does. Um, as of now, there's not enough chocolate, not enough cacao being grown in Hawaii to uh, feed the size of the craft chocolate companies that we have here. So like Manoa Chocolate, Maui Kui Estate of Chocolate, they, uh, they source cacao from Ecuador, from Uganda, and from other parts of the world. And then, you know, because we've heard uh, lots of hullabaloo about Kona coffee, yep. and how does that work for a, a product? like this where you've got some cacao from Hawaii and then other places. Sure, yeah, I think we're still sorting that out as an industry. Um, we have the HCCA, uh, which is our like industry group, and uh, I think we're going to have a lot of conversations in the next year or so about like how do we how do we market Hawaii cacao? How do we um, sell it? How do we make sure that we're like creating a strong brand for our local products? It's, it's kind of an exciting time for our industry in that a lot of farms like this one are about like three to five years old and they're just starting to bear fruit, just starting to do agritourism. So the industry is about to take a big leap and we need to have those conversations about what our product means to us and how we should market it. Uh, you had mentioned earlier that you were working on a farm over in the Big Island, is that right? Yeah, I was a student at UH Manoa for my graduate studies and I did my research in Hilo. Yeah, and I have a good buddy, um, Colin Hart, who's growing cacao just north of Hilo in Paukaa. So there's lots happening on Big Island. Lots of lots of little growers, medium-sized growers. They're going to contribute to Hawaii cacao. Where is most of the cacao grown at this point, do you think? At this point, uh, it's mostly, I guess, statistically on Oahu. The biggest grower in the state is Dole up here in Wailua. Uh, they have about 80 acres in production. So that kind of dwarfs the rest of the industry at this point. But we have Maui Kuya that you mentioned, grows uh, 20 acres of cacao. Um, let's see where else, Mililani, actually also here on Oahu. Uh, there's, a, there's a farm that grows about 10 acres of cacao. So those are small numbers like in the, in the global sense, but those are kind of like the bigger farms in Hawaii right now. If there's anybody out there then that's interested in maybe jumping into cacao, I mean, you know, what's the message that you want to try and underscore? Sure. I mean, scale is important, you know, so like creating a, a quality chocolate product requires that you're producing cacao at scale on your farm. So, you know, we always tell people at Cacao Services uh, that if you're growing anything less than 10 acres, really it's going to be hard for you to have an economically viable business if you're just selling dry cocoa to chocolate companies. If you have a smaller farm like this one in its current state, then you should really plan your business around agritourism. And that's the plan here, is you plan to start tours here hopefully by the end of the year? Absolutely, yeah, and, and I'll say like in addition to agritourism, it's like how much value can you add to your farm product like you you produce dry cocoa but can you make chocolate or can you partner with a company like Maui Kuya or um, Manoa Chocolate to create a bar that maybe has your label on it that you can sell on your farm tours those are all really important aspects of uh, successful cacao chocolate businesses in Hawaii. Are you a chocolate fiend? <laughs> I am yeah um, I grew up loving chocolate and you know having studied cacao in school and worked in the industry for a while developed a, a taste for like very 
good chocolate and but i've retained my taste for like you know hershey's like s'mores things like that like i, I love chocolate across the spectrum that was Max Breen, manager for a Wailua farm that's part of a joint venture with Manoa Chocolate and Cacao Services. And since he brought up the subject of s'mores, Thursday happens to be National S'mores Day. So go make some with Hawaiian chocolate. When it comes to music groups and its members pursuing solo careers, Hawaii has seen its fair share. Notable names like Peter Moon and Israel Kamakabibole are part of popular groups prior to finding solo success. Jordan T. is the former lead vocalist and guitarist for local country reggae band Maoli and is seeing strong support from fans as he embarks on his solo journey. HBR reporter Cassie Ordonio caught up with the Maui musician recently. She joins us in studio. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Thanks for having me. So tell us about this musician. It was really funny how I actually found out about him because I had no idea who he was at first. I knew who Maoli was. I knew who Catchafio was. But you never really get to know the individual band members. So I have a source who lives in San Francisco who saw the recent story that we did sometime last week on this uh, local band that we did. And um, she basically said, hey, why don't you do a story on Jordan T? And I was like, who is that? <laughs> so when I YouTubed him, I, I was stunned that he actually was the lead guitarist for Maoli and Catch a Fire. And um, when, when I did um, get to interview him, he has this very humble, contagious laugh. He just came back from California um, after performing at Yoshi's. Um, and so after um, Jordan T performed with um, reggae bands like Maoli and Catch a Fire, he also shared the stage with notable musicians, including Fiji, Jimmy Cliff, and Damian Marley. His music has been aired on radio stations in Hawaii, Guam, Tahiti, and Japan, and he built this solid fan base with some international following. So far, he has over 50,000 listeners, uh, mostly on Spotify alone. After being in well-known reggae bands, Jordan T went solo. When most artists go solo, they're mostly supporting themselves. The music career is just a challenge. If you put in the work and stay true to yourself, you can make it, but the hardest thing is probably finding time to rest. That's the biggest challenge because it's always busy. There's always something that needs to be done. And, you know, especially as an independent artist, we do a lot more of the work ourselves than if we were signed with a record label. They have a big team that will kind of like handle a lot of the little details and logistics. And he said it best, although he's not signed to this record label where they have backing from a team to handle um, and delegate all the logistics and the responsibilities. He does get support from his fan base. And uh, for example, his independent solo debut album, Bridges with the Vibes, was backed by his fans who raised $30,000 wow. for this. Yeah, and the initial goal was 25000 So they exceeded, <laughs> they exceeded more than, uh, what, about $5,000. And um, that was in 2016. And the following year after he released that album, the leftover funds actually was donated to Habitat for Human humanity in Nicaragua to build housing. So you kind of get a sense of um, who he is as a person. 
And um, when I interviewed Jordan T last week on Zoom, he just came back from California where he performed at Yoshi's in Oakland. And Yoshi's is this venue where people eat sushi and listen to live entertainment. So it's a mixture of where sushi meets jazz kind of thing. <laughs> and um, But Yoshi's is mostly known to have jazz, R&B, and hip-hop artists to, uh, performing like Van Morrison, Diana Krall, Taj Mahal, and others. And one of my favorite, Life Jennings, has also performed there as well and when I talk to him he's very humble very laid back he has this very contagious laugh when you hear it you can't miss it and his personality reflects his music and he mostly writes love songs in his reggae music I do write a lot of love songs <laughs> I think love is a very universal concept you know something that everybody in the world obviously feels or experiences at one time in their lives and all my songs that I write are based off of experiences that I've been through. So if you pay attention to the lyrics, like that's kind of giving you a storyline of my life. And Jordan T was born into a musical family. His mom was a piano teacher, so she taught him how to play. His dad played the guitar and would have jam sessions with his friends around Maui and also taught Jordan T how to play guitar. But he ended up getting into looping, which is this musical device that makes makes you have a one-person band. Uh, you can record sounds and add layers in real time. For example, you could play the guitar, record that, beatbox, record that, and then loop that in. Or you can add vocals and you can just keep layering. And it's just, I have this appreciation for musicians who do this because it's, you're really doing it on your own and you're multitasking. Yes, I happened to come across a musician up on Oahu's North Shore and he was doing this at this little eatery and it, he was really good. So yeah, you know, whether you're you're busking on the street, you know, or got a gig, um, yeah, it's really an interesting way to, to kind of grow. And the fact that he learned how to beatbox was really interesting to me, too, when he started doing looping. Um, and he got into looping because he couldn't find anyone to play with him back in Maui. So he bought uh, this musical software device. He bought the pedals to record. He learned on YouTube and he started messing with the sounds and learned how to beatbox. And here's an example of him actually looping. I think we got it this time. <laughs> We'll find out. Pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, I wish I knew how to do that. <laughs> so he told me he would get every chance he could to play music. He worked full time at this boating company company on Maui where he would scrub the boats and take people snorkeling and uh, whale watching. And by sunset, he would pull out his ukulele and start jamming. And once he's off work, he would go head to the bars in Kihei and Southern Maui and just jam. And that's when he started looping, um, doing the vocals, beatboxing, and that caught the attention of Maoli. Um, that was about maybe more than five years ago. So that's how he got introduced to the, the music scene, even though music has always been a part of his life. And Maoli reached out to him saying, we love what you do, come tour with us. And that's when he met um, bands like Catch a Fire, and then they offered him to be the lead guitarist for them as well. Um, but he always wanted to be a solo artist, and Jordan T is now working on his second album that will feature local and international artists, although he wouldn't tell me who they were. Uh, but he hopes to start releasing singles by the end of this year and to drop the album by next year. Right now he has a single out called I Feel It Could. One, two, three, for 
certainly wish him luck as he goes out on his solo career. I mean, we watch other people like Jake Shimokuro, right? Uh, move away from pure heart and it was a huge success. So, yeah, good for him. It's going to be exciting following him on his musical journey and um, we'll keep everyone updated when his album drops. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much, Cassie. Thanks for having me. Well, we've been talking with HBR's Cassie Ordonio about Maui musician Jordan T. You can hear more of Cassie's culture and art stories on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. does it for us today. We are out of time. Tomorrow, we plan to hear from Department of Hawaiian Homelands Director Kali Watson and Department's plan to provide housing units for Native Hawaiians. Share your comments or questions about what you heard by calling our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also find the Conversation Podcast on our website or on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you tune in to listen to podcasts. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. Mm-hmm.